Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from Biden's tax proposals to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're recording our first in-person conversation in over 15 months from the Westminster Studios in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm excited to be joined by fellow vaccinated colleague and friend, David Parrish. David is an international tax partner in PwC's Dallas office, a member of PwC's National Value Chain Transformation Team, and the Environmental, Social, and Governance Tax Leader. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. I'm so flattered for the invitation to do this in person. It was so invigorating to get on a plane, and strangely enough, that just felt like a tie to normalcy. So uh, thanks for the opportunity. Glad to be here. Well, it's really exciting to be talking to somebody in person, not in front of a Zoom screen for, for one of these. And so I'm, I'm very excited. And I also, David, want to welcome you back to, to St. Louis. Um, you grew up in Belleville, Illinois, part of what we refer to as the Metro East of, of St. Louis. And so for those who are outside of St. Louis, that, that counts as, as St. Louis. So I, I wanted to ask you before we kicked into this ESG stuff, what is your favorite St. Louis food that you can't find in Texas <laughs> that you miss? Because we like to eat some weird stuff around here. Right. That's a tough one. And especially so close to lunch, because now I'm going to be focused on it. it it's got to be the St. Louis style thin crust pizza because it's so special to the to the to the area it, it really is and and particularly to the hill right so we have this italian area in, in st louis my understanding is the largest little italy outside of new york and really has remained untouched for you know generations and they're particularly known for for the thin crust pizza right. and what makes it distinct is the type of cheese so it's this cracker crust pizza with cheese called provel which I've heard some of our friends and colleagues refer to it as the cheese whiz of, of cheese for cheese for pizza. They don't understand. Which is not a fair characterization for, for those that are from St. Louis. Um, and we also, of course, have toasted ravioli. You know, we deep fry our, our raviolis here um, and some other unique things. Frozen and, custard. That's right. right. Gooey butter cake, exactly. to name a few. Um, yeah, not necessarily the, the healthiest choices, but delicious nonetheless. <laughs> that's right. So let's move into to ESG. Um, you know, let, let's start at the top here with what is ESG? We're hearing a lot about this. We're seeing a lot of themes within, you know, Biden proposal announcement or Biden policy proposals that he's recently announced. We're seeing a lot of things and uh, even from PwC's perspective, various commitments that, that we've made from both an environmental and a social perspective. So this is something that we're hearing, particularly outside of tax, and we're going to get into some of the tax elements. But what's going on with ESG and help us understand what these three letters that are kicked around so much really, really mean? It's a great question, and it's a great place to start. It's probably easier asked than answered in a easy, direct fashion. But ESG, the acronym, is environmental, social, and governance, of course, and we can break down what those mean. But e ESG has become a groundswell, right? And, and it really uh, refers to an umbrella um, that covers uh, a company's views and policies and position in society for their broader stakeholders, right? In each of those those three areas and, and additional areas as well, right? When we really think about sustainability is in combination with the traditional environmental, social, and governance. 
And what is it? Why is this so important to companies? And so, because we, we've been hearing about it, and it's again this broad umbrella, and we're going to kind of dive into some of these different different elements. But you know, why is this? Why are we seeing a lot of this? Why is this important to to, to companies? Right. So again, it's another and investors, I guess. Right. It's another really broad question. So I, I think to answer that, I, I think of ESG is not a it's not a place, right? Like oftentimes when you first hear, when I first started learning about it and noticing it, you think. You hear this ESG and you say, "Oh, well, that's a that's a thing or a place. It's 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 a right answer. It's where a company, you know, what they must do." And, and I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I think about it as a spectrum, right? So when we say, "Why does this matter to cust- to, to companies or our clients?" Um, it could be a number of reasons, right? It, it 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 depends on the company and it depends on what their impact that they want to have in society at large, right? Or to their broader stakeholders, and you know, some of those drivers, Doug, are for um, um, strategic values that that company may have that it wants to, you know, hold itself to and in part also on, on its neighborhood. Um, others, it, it may be a access to uh, the capital markets or to capital from potential investors who value the ESG principles when they make their investment or, or, or capital decisions. Um, the other element, frankly, is its sustainability, right? You know, companies in 2021, you know, I, I mentioned the neighborhood before. There's two ways to think about this. You have your own house, right? Any homeowner does, and you care for it in a certain way, and you want to make sure it's sustainable and there for you and your family in the future. It's the same thing with your neighborhood that you live in. And these companies recognize that, that, you know, what your impact in your neighborhood it affects the sustainability of the neighborhood as a whole, but also also your own well-being. So these principles around environmental and social and governance, you know, there's broad recognition um, that companies have a role in that for their own benefit, but also for for broader stakeholders as well. And and, and that's one of the main drivers of why it has become such a, a important topic of the day. Yeah, I like that. And it's it's the communities that that are the companies and even the investors, so not necessarily just big public or even private companies. It's the communities that they live in. It's society at a large that has really. Um, you know, driven, I think, a, a lot of these behaviors and why this has really come to the forefront. Can, can you give maybe an example or two of, of each of these? Because it's still a little nebulous, right? Okay, we've right. got sustainability. We, we've got, um, or excuse me, we've got environmental, social, and I, I will sometimes mistake the S in for, for sustainability instead of social. Sustainability really covers the, it, it entire, the, the yep. entire umbrella, right. right? You might need to remind me again throughout sure. the course of the podcast here. Um, and then governance. But can you maybe give an example, you know, one or two examples of, of each to put in context? Sure. And, and um, if we start with environmental, all right, and, and this one's, it's probably the most obvious and the easiest, right? I sure. mean, it, it, it's a company's impact on where do you do business? Where do you source goods from? Uh, what's your carbon footprint? You know, think about your supply chain and logistics and the impact that, you know, the, the transportation of goods has on a carbon footprint. Think about an office space. And the amount of electricity that you use. Think about the way that we change the, you know, how we work in 2021. Certainly post COVID, you know, there's all those elements that you can think about and make that easy link to an environment or the the impact that, co- that companies have on their environment um, from a a green perspective. When you think about sure. true environmental stuff, social certainly. Um, if we think about um, the impact of a company on the society at large, what are its values? What type of influence do you want to have? What kind of mark do you want to leave behind? But then also, 
think about workplace. You know, what kind of environment do you want to provide for your employees and your customers, right? And your broader group of, of stakeholders from a uh, social experience uh, on a micro level of how, how individuals interact with the company. And, and diversity of work, the workforce comes to mind too, where, where we've made some commitments. I had Roy Weathers on the podcast a, a few years ago. We've obviously, PwC has dedicated significant resources as well as the rest of corporate America. And you know, one of the things that, that we've been very publicly focused on as a firm is our transparency with respect to our underrepresented minorities, gender diversity, and the like, and being very transparent with that. And so I think that would firmly fit within that, that social column, if you will. Absolutely, Doug. And, and, and it's a link, though, to the sustainability piece as well, right? So it, it, it's, good for, it, it's good for the people. It's good for you. But frankly, if, if you're going to be a company that's going to be around, that's going to be sustainable, that's going to have customers, continue to have customers, you know, these are the types of values and decisions that are that are taking place. They're a fabric of the society. If, if you want to have the, the the best and the brightest and, and you know, diversity within thought uh, and, and part of your success story is going to have to be inclusive, right, on the types of people that you have um you know, as as drivers and employees in in the business for right. sure, and then the G. We got to hit yeah. the G. So don't we, forget the G. Yeah, the, the, the governance. It, there's a couple facets of each of these, right? And the governance. I I think about D and I as well, right? I think about you know when you leadership and boards positions and mm-hmm. who are in government's roles. Um, it's important to have that diversity there as well for the values perspective, but also for the sustainability for the company perspective to be around to see how all this turns out. But then certainly within governance, we need to think about transparency and reporting, which is right. another hot topic, right, in ESG. And part of that governance is, you know, how do we think about how companies uh, report Um their positions in ESG, their goals, how are they meeting those goals, how are you measured to them, what kind of story do you want to share, all of that rolls into the G piece. Got it. And, and what do you think is, what's driving some of these changes? There's obviously been a lot of NGOs, for example, activity, and we've seen, I feel like Europe is is arguably ahead of the U.S. in, in some of these spaces, but you know, what, what do you view as really kind of driving some of these changes? I think it's three piece. And the first is the NGO that you mentioned. Obviously, there's some very um, there's there's parties that are interested in you know specific pieces of ES and G, right? There's, sure. You know the environmental NGOs, there's social NGOs, you know, and there's these different stakeholders that have their kind of passion positions that are in this space, and 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 they drive these discussions, right? Which is great. Um, and then there's NGOs now that are focused on the ESG as this umbrella concept that I talk about. You know, what is the combination of things that companies need to need to be thinking about? Um, and then there's certainly just the, the the social in general. And when I say social, I mean, you know, there's social influencers and social commenters for sure. But just you know, let let's get down to the brass tacks, right? I mean, these companies are in business to make money and provide. yeah, the consumer drives the decisions That's, and the, the, all the stakeholders to that point. But you know that that they're making decisions not necessarily for a political reason because sometimes this can get politicized, right? That's right. But I mean, generally, most of it, I mean, the public companies are obviously looking out for, for all the, the, their, their stakeholders, but ultimately the customer and the shareholders and the equity owners are very important amongst other stakeholders. That's right. So there's this vote with consumer dollars and there's a vote with investor dollars, right? Sure. And, you know, it's one of the things that's exciting about ESG and why I consider it a tipping point now. You know, when you have these interested part, parties involved, like the NGOs are, are the social influencers that have, you know, passion issues that they want to see companies reflect, that's great. When you start to see the consumer dollars or investment dollars that are starting to also 
invest and buy thing and consume the goods that reflect these values, you know, then we know this thing is here and we know that it's going to have a massive impact, right? When PE gets involved and when sovereign wealth funds get involved, like they're known for the quick broad impact that they can make, right? When they go in and they invest in companies and if, you know, through different management issues or techniques or styles or this governance that we talked about, they can have broad sweeping change in a short amount of time. And and that's where, that's where we are now. It's just at the precipice of that. We're starting to see that. Yeah. Then I think that you had mentioned the two NGOs and and consumers. Um, And then I I think is the third really kind of what we're seeing from governments and, uh, Right, exactly. So as you said, look, Europe's been a leader in this area, certainly out ahead of the U.S. Um, we're starting to see that gap close some one because we start to see the, 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 the money that's in there. But before, before we go to that, um, you know, with the change of the administration in the U.S., um, cons- uh, a change of consumer habits, right? You know, we just went through this global pandemic for sure. And, you know, pe- people have, I think, you know, been influenced and, and there's been some reflection upon, you know, values in our society and what things are important and, and the like, and without trying to break down a consumer behavior. Um, but we're certainly seeing a government from a policy perspective start to embrace some of these issues from the U.S., you know, the Biden, uh, the, the Biden tax plan that came out, you know, it's been three or four, maybe, maybe more weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Now, um, it's certainly integrated ESG principles into some of the policies when we think about some of the, the, the incentives around, um, renewable energy, for example. Yeah. And I think we'll continue to see, you know, both from a U.S. perspective and globally more consistency on, on reporting. We've seen a number of companies and, you know, both public and private that have taken different approaches to transparency and including our organization. And I, I assume that we'll, you know, we'll start to see more standards, um, you know, from a regulatory and governmental perspective. There's two points and it's a great point. And this is something that's coming right to our, to our doorstep. And it's something mm-hmm. that we should all think about and, and, and how, how we're going to position ourselves in it. So there's some standards that are out there now, right? There's UN standards, there's GR, GRI standards, and different companies have signed up for different pieces. And you know, right now they report, and there's some transparency, and they kind of report on on their story. Um, there's not a audit of those standards, right? Right. Say there's not consistency across the board on those standards. And when we talk about the amount of money that's invested, and we talk about you know the the, the stakes. Um, that are out there, we certainly see governments now are rallying around um, a focus on developing a set of standards. And um, certainly then there'll be some focus and some activity about how we make sure that there's consistency across those. Mm-hmm. The, the, the SEC, just within the last couple of weeks, you know, one of the articles that I saw that came out, the SEC made a comment about, you know, how um, in companies, you know, public disclosures, um, we need to work towards some consistency, right, and some standards. Sure. So, you know, I don't know how to read into that too much, but I, I would expect that to be a, a, an instance or at least a indicia of some proposed rulemaking potentially to come in that area. Yeah, you had mentioned the the, the consumers, right, as as obviously one of the the big drivers for the reason that that companies will adopt it and and make some of these changes. There's a tremendous amount of capital sloshing around out there because investors, right, um, have recognized that this is a massive opportunity and, and for, for investment. 
So how does this kind of impact the allocation of capital and, and the greater capital markets? Because sure. this is we're seeing real changes and real behaviors here. It, it, it's always great to uh, I like to put a statistic out there, right? And it it, it it shows the magnitude, and then we can talk about you know mm-hmm. the, the the whys or the what fors. And, and you can go do research and you see different numbers that come up. But, you know, one of the ones that, that people seem to coalesce around is as much as a third of invested capital in the U.S. is invested in companies or funds, managed funds, right, that have investments in companies with ESG principles, mm-hmm. right, or pledges. Um, that's $17 trillion in the U.S. alone, right, if it if it really is a third. So I, I don't know, Doug, if it's right. $13 trillion or $17 trillion or $22 trillion, and I don't, you know, from where I sit, those are all pretty much the same number. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. But there's an amazing amount of capital that's out there. And that capital is looking for ESG investments. Um, and, you know, that can be anywhere along the spectrum. Maybe it's companies that have a net zero pledge like we do, right, at PwC. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's companies that have commitments on diversity inclusion, on board makeup, right? It, it could be all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But the point is, you know, there's not many companies that are out there, um, public or private, that aren't interested in access to capital markets, right? Of course. And that's a that's a big amount of dollars chasing investments. And then the other is is the lenders, right? They're they're part of this as well. The lenders get the sustainability or the the sustainability that can revolt result from, you know, proper ESG principles and execution of them. Um, it it it's shown um, that it 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 lends to or, or tends to lend to the sustainability and longevity of customers, their borrowers, right? That's a good bet if you're a lender, right? It's sustainability. So they're looking for ESG principles as well, oftentimes when they are making their lending decisions. Right. And then, you know, in addition to obviously lending and equity funding, there's obviously the deals market then. And so we, we've seen Obviously, the deals market has really picked up kind of post-COVID, a lot of activity out there. We know a lot of dry powder is the term I think a lot of our yes. um, you know, colleagues like, like to use. And so to your point, with all this capital out there, there's obviously opportunities for investment um, that companies can make, but we're seeing a, a lot of deals. And so you know, how, does this kind of, how does this play a part in, in the deals market? I can imagine there's an element of you know, companies that... You know, that are looking to to acquire something and want to make sure that there's ESG and there's sustainability, um, and then obviously as companies are looking to make individual investment decisions as well. But how, and, and from a, a how does that impact the deals market? Sure. Well, it, it's on fire, right? It's like pouring gasoline on it. In some extenses, is the short answer how it affects it. But I think of it two ways. And 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 one is this: there are there's legislation currently that exists and has for over a decade in the U.S. around uh, carbon credits and especially you think about the renewable energy space Mm -hmm. and that has fostered deals over time and it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter but you know these credits it's not like the foreign tax credits and we'll I'm surprised how long we got in this conversation without getting tax nerdy at all but it's not like the foreign tax credits that you and I are used to dealing with throughout our careers where your credits or your attribute is based on your activity. Yeah, they are not profile. fungible or tradable. Right. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. That's not the case around the world and in the U.S. with some of the carbon credits and the legislation that's available, sure. which I think is a good thing. It drives good behavior, but companies will enter into a deal for credit planning, right, to get access to credits. Or if you're a net, a net holder of credits, you may want to get into a deal like a tax equity partnership arrangement, for example, with somebody who's looking for the credits. Um, so that drives deals in that space for sure. 
Um, but the, the other one, Doug, is it's the, um, and this is where you start to dive in. We tried to stay high level, but at some point you got to mm-hmm. dive right in. Let's and get, do it. And get a little bit into it. But, you know, the other thing that excites me about the deal space um, is in ESG is companies have made these pledges, right? They've made these commitments around net zero, or they just have a strategy where they want to land on the spectrum that I talked about. Mm-hmm deals is a is a lever to get really move the needle in a, in a quick and impactful way right we can go out and we can do an acquisition of a company that fits our profile or right. our target or what we want to be or folds into our story right and and is part of our ESG strategy divestiture is the same way right there may be instances where you've got a part of your business that is you know not part of that future you know that that future profile that you want to have um, and the same thing, you know, there's like any other market, there's buyers and sellers on that on both sides and you sure. look for different pieces that you fit in. But I'll say one last piece on this, you know, earlier on I said ESG is not a place. Like I, I really believe that this is a good concept to remember when you talk about, you know, this whole spectrum and there's no right answer. Like companies are going to find themselves in different spectrums or along this path, but ESG is also not a thing. And what I mean by that is ESG is already, it's become integrated. So when you mm-hmm. think about like in a deal space, it's a good example. You know, we, we've been doing deals and we've been advising on companies on deals for, you know, eons as a firm, mm-hmm. right, as everybody knows. And, you know, think of the data points, right? When you go to do due diligence, like mm-hmm. what do you look for? What are you thinking about? Like what, why is this a profile? What do I need to cross off to make sure that this company really does the things? I'm buying what I think that All I'm right. buying, for example. E- ESG is not a thing. It, it's not... Um, this thing out by itself where you're going to go say, oh, this is a, you know, that's ESG. I'm going to go buy it. Mm-hmm. It's a profile. It's part of the fabric. It's integrated in what that company is. It's another data point, is, in other words, is my point. When mm-hmm. you go and you do all of your normal deal activity, both at a company side and then also on the advisor side, um, it's integrated in that business. And it, it, it needs to be, it ought to be a, a data point that, the you know a, a buyer a seller a consultant is thinking about and looking looking at as they do their analysis yeah it seems like a really you know additional list of of things from a diligence perspective right i mean just fundamentally how companies have approached diligence you know if they're looking for a strategic investment obviously from an esg perspective they obviously need to do the diligence but even for those frankly just doing you know deals outside the esg space there also becomes an element of, is this company that we're looking to acquire being responsible right. from an ESG perspective? Well, well, there's a risk and a reward, right? You know, we're used to like environmental things, simple things like, oh, I don't want to go buy a company probably with a super fun site or an right. investment problem or lawsuit out there. Like, that, that, guess what? I mean, that, that's environmental. It's been out there. It's been out there for a while. Fair right? enough. But, you know, so, so like these concepts, like they're not necessarily like, you know, new whiz That's what I mean. There's not this thing that's yeah. new. It, 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 it's part of that fabric, but it's more of a focus, both from this risk and a reward perspective. And, you know, look, it, it, I'll say again, there's not a right answer on this spectrum. Like there's some companies who are going to want to fall on a spectrum where they're very um, leading edge right on their ESG strategy and you know their impact on the environment for example there's other companies that you know they will be somewhere in the middle given it's their it's their goals or their values or it may be that you know they're in a business line where you can achieve so much right and then you know others may want to just make sure that they don't have foot faults right mm-hmm. i don't want to acquire something that is really not a place that i that i should be so there's this spectrum all along and part of one of the things that companies are going to do but also advisors 
is it's not, again, it's not about this right answer necessarily. What is the company strategy and what is the company goal goals and how do we, you know, help make sure we stay within those lines that we want to be in or we achieve those lines. And this deal space is a huge, huge part of that as we go forward. Absolutely. So, so let's peel that onion back a little bit and keep diving down a little sure. lower, sort of into some of the tactical, right? So we're seeing, you know, companies starting to, to make, you know, the strategic decision about pursuing ESG and, you know, potentially publicity or whatever PR about it. But, but how does it actually infiltrate a, a company's value chain? Right. So, so you have like presumably companies need to start making decisions. And many of them, I think your, your earlier point is a great one. Companies have been contemplating this and been mindful of the environmental issues from the social issues of being mindful of making sure that you don't have children working in factories for your contract manufacturers, for example. And I mean, this has been on the you know, high, if not the highest on the checklist for, for, for companies for, for decades. Right. Right. Um, but you know that it, it infiltrates all aspects of a supply chain, and and I will remind the audience we still have two tax lawyers talking about ESG, and so so why is this important from a value chain perspective, and ultimately how it drives a company's tax footprint, and how, how do those start to overlap? Right, I will. Uh, I I have to make this analogy too to go into this. It's a great way to. I, I think of us. It, it's well, it's NASA, right? And everybody's going to say NASA. What is this crazy guy talking about, right? When I first started getting involved in ESG, I talked to a lot of CEOs, right? Because CEOs were out leading, they were making pledges like, sure. like ours, you yeah. know, about, about net zero. And I would go talk to them and about their passion about it. And then, you know, I would always inevitably ask, okay, what's, what's the plan? Like, what's the tactical, where you're going? And they're CEOs. And so they didn't always have the answer on what's the tactical, and that's okay. Like, it, right. it, it, and it reminded me of, of Kennedy in the moonshot, right? It reminded me of President Kennedy saying, hey, we're going to go land on the moon. And everybody thought, what is this guy talking about? And if you ask John Kennedy, how are you going to go do that? Probably no idea. He doesn't know about rocket boosters and propulsion and stuff like that. But he knew he could put together NASA of a bunch of people that had great thoughts about how you're going to go achieve lofty goals, right? Mm -hmm. So when we think about um, the question about value chain and supply chains and you know getting tactical, I think about it like that. We have these goals out there, whether they've been stated or unstated or you know made public. I mean, there's these goals out there that these companies want to achieve for whatever their reasons are, right? The, the social altruism mm -hmm. or the cap access to capital. Um, you, you, at some point, you know, if you have a 2030 uh, net zero goal that you've put out there, it's 2021 now. This is not going to happen overnight. You better get tactical, right? right? Which is your point. And and the value chain is a huge piece of that. So if you think about like a net zero commitment, um, for example, and you look at a company, a global company's footprint around the world and their value chain, just think about logistics, mm -hmm. right? Think about, okay, if I'm doing now a analysis on what is my source of origin going to be, right? Which is an extremely common thought process right now in so many of our clients. If you look at the world, right? You look at sure. trade policy, the trade wars that are going on and just everything that's taken away with COVID, the disruption to the supply chains has been dramatic. Geopolitics that are going on in Asia and supply chain resiliency. And do I have the right mix of, you know, sources of origin? Am I over-dependent on one single place? And, you know, COVID kind of put the the, the straw on the camel's back or the spotlight I think on that's right. supply chain resiliency, right? So you're in this analysis now already and you're saying, okay, what are, what are my new sources of origin going to be, for example? And it's the same thing I talked about before. We know how to do source of origin jurisdiction analysis, right? I mean, what what's the cost of labor, right? What, you know, um, 
what is it going to cost me to go do my shipping or logistics? Yeah, shipping from, from Mexico B. versus Asia, for example, right? right. That, that math is pretty easy. But then all of a sudden you start thinking about carbon footprints. It's a little yeah, bit more complicated. Exactly. And that's why I kind of walked us into that link. It's like these are natural things that we talk about. But hey, all there's, the time. there's an ESG component of this. Like that ought to be maybe a little bit more of a weighted factor than it used to be. Logistics mm-hmm. is not just a cost or a time issue anymore, right? How does that reflect or how does that support or detract from my net zero goal? So it's it, it's it's kind of an old process, you know, that we're used to doing when we make some decisions around supply chain, but it, it's a it's a new it's a new element, if you will, or a new value that's around it. And, and you know, logistics is one easy example. You know, the other thing when you think about like supply chain again is, you know, as the world changes and as we you know seek out new sources of origin or, or footprints or places of manufacture or things like that, it'll be all the same data points when we look at those. But think again about when you're considering, say, developing country, you know, new sources of origin. We see them all the time, right? Like Bangladesh and Vietnam sure. and Honduras and these places are bubbling up. Well, how does that fit into the ESG story? It's got to be one of the questions you ask, right? Is there a stable um, water source? Is it delicate? Can it, you know, is it a good thing to introduce, you know, a new manufacturing process or facility in a specific area? Or is it a bad thing, right? Is there is there a you know, part of a, a, a country or an economy that is going to be helpful or a detractor, and that can be part of your ESG story. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, all of those things, those are just examples, and we could spend a lot of time going through specific examples. But I think the important thing to point out from a tax perspective, and a lot of people often, you know, yes, I get ESG. Yes, that makes sense. You know, what is, what's the tide of tax? Like, mm-hmm. why should we care so much for tax? Tax can be the pay for yeah. A lot of these ESG programs, they're costly, right? And that's okay, right? But they can also be cost neutral if you layer in tax. Tax can even be a pay for, right, for other areas. So, for example, you know, once you open the hood on that supply chain, you know, we have all of our traditional planning tools around, you know, trade flows, like who is going to be the buyer and who's going to be the seller? Where does margin land along the value chain? And you get to make decisions as a tax planner, yeah, and, as you know. Right. And and typically as part of that process, people where should people be located? Where do we need to have these significant people functions, these dumpy functions that we like to, to refer to? And anytime you're opening up the hood and having those conversations and get to have the tax people having a conversation with the business people, you know, there becomes opportunities, right, to be able to, to do to do it tax efficiently um, and to try to manage that overall tax burden. That's exactly right. So if you look at that whole value chain, you know, think about where you either manufacture goods yourself or you contract manufacture goods, which is typical, right? So you've sourced out of some part of the world and maybe that part of the world has um, unsavory employment reputation, right? Maybe it's child labor, maybe it's working conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, those were factors that companies looked at before. Absolutely. But, but now it's, you know, that's part of the scorecard. Mm-hmm right, uh, that I need to make sure that I'm considering of, and it may be that companies start to decide, not maybe, it is, right? I'll, I'll sure. just to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> companies are now making decisions based upon that. Like, look, this does not, this does not reflect our values. It's not part of our values. We have to find a better way. You know, look, we're, we're, we're a business in a capital society and we're trying to make, you know, we're trying to make a return for investors. So we can't just say, okay, we're going to go, you know, to the 
cost doesn't matter, we can go manufacture anywhere. I think where we come in as tax advisors is to help that balance. You know, look, we don't have to get the lowest cost labor in the world. You know, maybe if we have a plan, a smart plan that layers in the logistics um, as well as the cost of labor, it may make a lot more sense to have something in hemisphere, for example, sure. to wherever the market is. So all of these things start to fit together. And what I get excited about from being part of PwC <laughs> in our firm is we know how to we know how to do those analyses now. And we've done it for years and we have the expertise. It's just a matter of making sure that we properly, I think, I, I, I think of weighing these ESG factors when we start to make those decisions. Yeah, so in addition to the supply chain, um, the other big opportunity, I think, from a tax planning and tax footprint perspective is that a, a lot of the investments that companies are, are, are making and the initiatives that they have feels like a, and as we talked about access to capital markets, the impact on consumers, this starts to sound a lot like intellectual property that yes. companies are developing even internally or looking to acquire if the company's got particular expertise. Right. And you know, obviously, as we're starting early investments into any type of new technology or any type of new product or any type of new value driver, tax can obviously play a very key element in understanding what the total return for that type of investment is going to be. So talk a little bit about what you're seeing in, in that space and our, our, it does this really, really creates an, oppor an opportunity as from an intellectual property perspective to think about how you want to structure these types of investments. It, absolutely. It, it's such an interesting area to think about, Doug. So, you know, I, I always have to say that I know probably 99% of the folks that are tuned into this know this already, but I always have to say because I feel better. Intellectual property, when we think about it from a tax perspective, it's really about influences and behaviors, right? It's not so much, it is, but it's not just about, you know, old IP uh, patents, trademarks, that kind of right. trademarks, all that stuff is there for sure. But, you know, when we think about from a tax perspective, what, what really um, gets me excited about intellectual property are those things that, that lead directly to consumer behavior. What makes your customer buy from you instead of somebody else? It can be marketing intangibles and know-how, and there's all kinds of things that go into that, how you position something on a shelf, you sure. know, all of these things, intellectual. And again, we've dealt with planning around this for years and years and years. And it's bigger than like when you think about IP and what its value is and what its value is in a, in a, in a tax chain, i.e., how do governments tax intellectual property, right? It's not about the $10 investment that was made to go, you know, or $10 million investment that was made to go um, design something, right? It, 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 it's probably, well, it's not probably, it is that future revenue stream, right, right, of consumers. And it's really about this consumer behavior concept. So with all of that kind of, you know, IP 101 <laughs> out of the way, mm -hmm. what's exciting about this ESG as an intellectual, or as an intangible, um, it is about that consumer behavior, right? You know, the, the stats are out there and the studies show and the, and the performances out there, consumers buy based upon how they view companies' position under this umbrella of ESG principles, right? Are they a good mm -hmm. steward of the environment? And, you know, do they reflect the social values that I reflect, that I want to see in a company? Um, you know, what does that board makeup look like? Consumers are making buy decisions based on this, and, and that leads to profit. And allocation of profit, obviously, is a key part of our jobs as tax advisors, internal and external. So when you go and you make these you know, investment decisions, these strategic decisions, you know, the, the sustainability uh, officer build out of, of functions, 
it's all of our standard tools that we think about as tax planners of where should they be, where could they be, where do these functions, assets, and risks take place? Because you know that drawing the consumer behavior and the stickiness to consumers is all part of that value chain that we look at like any other form of intellectual property. Yeah, it'll be interesting because we've seen some of the you know Biden and, and Democrat proposals from a tax perspective and potentially changing or even repealing the foreign-derived intangible income. And um, you know, there's been some discussions about moving the FDII regime closer to a patent box regime, which presumably this type of IP may not qualify right. for. So it's going to be very interesting because I think this should be a part of that of that conversation of trying to encourage that type of investment in the U.S., creating those incentives that they had for FDII to keep those intangibles in in the U.S. I think that'll be interesting to see how how this plays out, particularly with FDII, and as we think of more patent boxes and can understand kind of where where some of the policy, key policy decisions and struggles will, will be. I think it'll be fascinating to watch. And at a global level, Doug, I, I think, and I hope, I, I hope where we head here in the U.S., um, but certainly um, it is to have a policy that reflects like an integrated value approach. Like to your point, it's not about just a patentable product, right, right? which is historically how these things were written. But because I don't imagine, you know, there'll be many instances where there's this, you know, identifiable thing, as we discussed. Right. Like, this, this is the ESG and this is the ESG royalty. And therefore, right. it should qualify for, you know, my royalty incentive to attract, you know, developing these sorts of things. Um, I, I would imagine that, that a policy that is more focused on the integrated value of, you know, a product taxation of a product that has ESG principles um, in, embedded in it, for mm -hmm. example. Um, hopefully that's where we head from a policy perspective. You know, all of this, like we're, we're witnessing, witnessing all of this unfold in front of us right now. So we get to watch it, but we also get to influence it. Right. Yeah. And our roles. And we should, we should all be thinking about that. Yeah. And one of the points I'm taking away too is, is a good reminder. A lot of this stuff has been going on for, for decades, right? And we talk about, you know, the elements of the supply chain that you mentioned. I mean, carbon credits have been relevant for obviously the energy sector for, for decades. And some of this is, is new packaging, but some of this is also new behavior. Behavior. Um, so I guess maybe here in, in closing, David, what, what should companies really be focused on here in, in the short term? And I think one of them you had already alluded to is just keeping up with the business folks, right? And just making sure that, um, you know, this is a, a struggle for, for all of our in-house folks, right? Keep it up with the business. I mean, that's what the, the, those tax folks do for, for right. a living. And this is just another element that I think for the re reasons that you mentioned from a value chain perspective, from thinking about intellectual property, thinking about the, you know, how that tax footprint could, could be impacted all, you know, is, is a very important first step. Right. For sure. I, I both, you know, as tax advisors, right at the end of the day, both internal and external, right? So for, for us as consultants and then for our clients, um, I think it's important to remember that the goal is to meet the company where the company is, right? There's, I go back to this concept again, I, there, there's not a specific right answer or, or plot that's a one size fits mm -hmm. all. Companies are gonna make decisions about this. But I think as the advisor, it's that's the first question is you, you understand your company strategy. Right. What are the commitments that were made? Is it a net zero? Is it a, you know, social commitment? Um, do they have a policy paper that's been released? You know, I go to many of our clients' websites and they've got a reported document out. Right. Right. And we didn't yeah. get transport transparency and reporting a lot on the, on this conversation, but, you know, that that's out there and companies are are are. are uh, releasing statements on sure. you know where where they are on their ESG 
G you know path. And so understanding that first, right? What is the company strategy, and then how do I how do I fit within that? How can I support that, right? As a tax planner, whether it's you know getting tactical with credits and incentives, and you know think about um, you know we have a database, for example, where we can go out and we can look at whatever current green incentives are out there around the mm-hmm. world, right? So it's getting part of that strategy and being part of it and supporting it and, and understanding that and 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 the time frame. Well, David, this has been very thought-provoking discussion, um, a really broad topic, uh, obviously, but I think something that really creates a lot of opportunities from a, from a tax perspective and also some, some risks. And so really important, like everything else in our business, to stay super close to, to the business folks and uh, um, look for those opportunities and try to be proactive. So David, wanna thank you very much. It's great seeing you in person, having a live in-studio guest. It's really been a pleasure. Right, likewise, thank you, Doug. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you to David Parrish, PwC's ESG tax leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's international tax services leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.